Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great God who speaks to us. So we pray that now as we listen to your word, may the words that are found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts be right and pleasing before you and bring your name glory. Amen. Why worship God? When asked this question, a common answer that we give often goes along the lines of, because God is good, God deserves to be worshipped. Probe deeper, the answer as to why God deserves to be worshipped hovers around the idea that He has blessed us. He has been so good to me in my life. He has brought about a tremendous change in my life, rescued me from my old self, made me the man or woman that I am today, the husband, the wife, father, mother, child, parent, worker, moral person, ideal citizen that I am today. Our common intuitive answer to the question, why worship God, inevitably hovers around the idea of what God has done to me or for me in my life. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with such answers. Very often in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, Israel is called as a nation to worship God because of God's wonderful deeds performed for her. So there is truth in such answers. But perhaps the only thing lacking when we think deeper is that such answers are temporal in nature. Temporal in the sense that they are dependent on what happens around us, dependent on what happens to us in our lives, dependent on what happens in our time. Such answers lack an eternal basis. An eternal basis that goes beyond what happens in our lives or the immediate circumstances surrounding us, be they COVID-19 or Phase 2, etc. An eternal basis that goes beyond this earthly reality. Where then do we go to find this eternal basis for why we worship God? Revelation chapters 4 and 5 provide us that basis. Through the Apostle John, Revelation 4 and 5 opens a door for you and I to enter the heavenly inner courts, to get a heavenly perspective of all that takes place here on earth. You and I get to enter the heavenly control room, so to speak, where we see that whatever action that takes place there has a direct impact on what happens here on earth. So if I can use the analogy of our Changi Airport, and in doing so, it's really to whet our appetites and make us long for the good old days where we can travel freely again. You see, most of us in um, going to the airport, uh, we experience one dimension and one aspect of all that is happening at the airport. So we may be there checking in at one of the self-check terminals, getting ready to board our flights. Uh, we may be there doing some last-minute shopping, catching a flight and being in the plane as it takes off on the runway, or perhaps just simply there at the airport to welcome back a loved one. But in all of these, we are experiencing but one dimension, 
one slice of the entirety of all that happens at the airport. You and I don't have a view of what goes on at the airport all at once. You and I don't get to see the central factor, the central thing that controls and directs all the operations at the airport. The closest we can get to is maybe the control tower. Up there, we get a view of the entire operation of the runway. We get to see the planes taking off, the planes landing. We see all of it at one go. And we see all of this operation being directed and channeled from the one central location of the control tower. Whatever that takes place in the control tower affects the operation of the planes down below. Revelation 4 to 5 is that heavenly control room experience. Welcome to the heavenly control room. Welcome to the heavenly perspective of all that takes place here on earth, where whatever that happens in this heavenly control room affects what happens on earth below. See, one way to understand this is if Revelation chapters 2 and 3 show us the earthly reality of what was happening to the churches in the Asia Minor region during the days of the Apostle John, if they show us this earthly reality with a heavenly evaluation, then Revelation chapters 4 and 5 show us the heavenly view of our earthly reality. And as we read chapters 4 and 5, or hear them being read to us, we can't help but feel overwhelmed. There are vivid pictures, multiple colours, overlapping images, so much so that a mental and pictorial conception of this heavenly view escapes us. And seeing this heavenly view is almost like seeing things through a kaleidoscope. I'm sure the Apostle John felt confused and lost, but captivated and mesmerised at the same time. Here's two guiding principles to help us grasp the big picture and not get overwhelmed by the details as we read what is known to us today as apocalyptic literature. First, if apocalyptic literature is to provide us the heavenly view, the heavenly reality, then realize this, that heavenly reality consisting of God himself, heavenly things and heavenly beings is often described using earthly expressions. And we might go on to say, earthly expressions found either in the form of writings like the Old Testament scriptures and other ancient Near Eastern writings, or earthly expressions in the form of existing practices in the Greco-Roman world that the Apostle John was living in. So for example, when we read of Revelation 4.3, God having the appearance of jasper and carnelian and emerald, now, these were really precious stones or precious jewels known in the ancient world back then. And together, they expressed the glory and splendor of God. Then in Revelation 4.6, the sea of glass, that is really an allusion to the expanse or the firmament that separated the waters in Genesis 1.7. And once again, that expresses God's vastness, his transcendence and his holiness that separates him from his creation. Revelation 4, the 24 elders and four living creatures. Here we have heavenly beings that are described in either human-like terms 
or they are described using common animals that we are familiar with. And finally, Revelation 5, the scroll sealed with seven seals. This was a reference to the doubly inscribed contract deed that was used by the Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans. In all of the above examples, can we see? We see how the heavenly reality, how that is described using earthly expression. The second principle to guide us as we read apocalyptic literature is this. Heavenly reality, especially heavenly beings, consists of the heavenly counterparts of earthly realities. Here, not only is the heavenly reality, in this case, the heavenly beings described in earthly expressions, they are also often the heavenly counterparts of what goes on on earth below. So the 24 elders, these are heavenly beings who reign with God. By the same time, they're the heavenly counterpart of the complete church on earth, consisting of the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 apostles. The four living beings, uh, these combine the cherubim of Ezekiel's chapters 1 and 10, and it combines the seraphim of Isaiah 6. And these heavenly beings, these living beings, represent the highest order of celestial beings. Perhaps they are angels who lead in worship and judgment as seen in the book of Revelation. But the thing is this, while these four living beings transcend nature in the sense of being heavenly beings, they also represent the whole of the created order as it stands before God. They could be seen as heavenly counterparts of the whole of created order on earth. And as heavenly counterparts of earthly realities, what they do in the heavenlies above often is played out in the earthly realities which they represent below. The heavenly drama, in other words, pans out in the earthly drama that we experience in history and in time. So in Revelation 4 to 5, you and I are invited up to the heavenly control room where we see that whatever that takes place in the heavens above is enacted out in the earthly reality below. Now, we may not be absolutely clear of the details of the different heavenly beings that we encounter. There's still room open for discussion and interpretation. But one thing that we are clear about is the central thing that takes place in this heavenly control room. And that is worship, isn't it? The worship of God is the central action that takes place in the heavenly courts. And you and I can't miss that. And remember, if the heavenly reality is the very thing that is worked out in our earthly reality, if the heavenly drama pans out as the earthly drama in our history and time, then the worship of God is at the very heart and centre of that heavenly reality. And here in the passage, three reasons are given to us why the worship of God is at the very heart and center of the heavenly reality. So the first reason, God is worshipped simply because of who he is, the eternal, almighty, holy God. Revelation 4.8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. The first worship chorus of the four living beings captures it all. Three attributes of God are celebrated here. His holiness, his omnipotence, and his eternality, or the fact that he is eternal. And to show you why these three qualities in themselves are praiseworthy, you see, friends, there are many things that you and I could say about ourselves, right? But any sane person with the right measure of himself or herself will not say the following three things. We will not say that we are holy, 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 because left to ourselves in an idle moment of a day, we have thoughts that we'll be too ashamed to let anyone else know, including the people closest to us. So holy, we are not. The second thing we won't say is that we are almighty, because if this COVID-19 has reminded us, all it takes is something so small, invisible to the naked eye, to completely bring our health, our lungs, to a grinding halt. So, almighty we are not. And the third thing we certainly won't say is that we are one who was and is and is to come. Because if I came to you in all seriousness and said this and genuinely believed this, you would show me that this is not true. And then you'll probably take out your handphone and, and call for the ambulance and pack me in the ambulance to send me somewhere. Right? Because before the 18th September 1975, I was not around. And after a certain date somewhere in the future, I would no longer be around. We came from dust, and to dust we will return. So eternal we are not. But the very things that we are not is what is celebrated and worshipped in the living God who is these very attributes. He is holiness. He is strength and might and power. He is eternality. The second reason, God is worshipped because he is creator. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now the second worship chorus says it all. God is to be worshipped because he is creator, and as creator, he is sustainer. Now notice with me, who is it in this heavenly court scene who is it that does the worship and proclamation? It is Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, isn't it? And then Revelation 4.9 tells us the 24 elders join in and worship and proclaim God as the great creator and sustainer. And if, as we have seen earlier, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are the heavenly counterparts of what is the entire created order and the church here on earth. Then isn't it all the more appropriate that it is creation itself and the church herself that utters this praise and renders this worship. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verses 39 to 40. Over there, some of the Pharisees wanted Jesus to silence his disciples and to stop them from calling him Messiah. 
And Jesus said this, I tell you, if the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's what Psalm 19 tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation cannot stop proclaiming the praise and wonder of its creator. If fallen humanity refuses to recognize its creator, Lord, and insists on doing all that we can to suppress this truth, Scripture tells us the entire created order will do it instead and will praise her creator. And as Revelation goes to show us, God will use his created order itself to execute his judgment on stubborn, rebellious humanity who refuses to recognize its creator. That's what the rest of Revelation goes on to show. The four living creatures very often take the lead in the outpouring of divine judgment. And as for the church, if the rest of humanity refuses to worship God as creator, the church will take the lead and do that. We will praise and worship God as creator, as the one who gives us life and sustains our lives. That's what we do as the church whenever we read a letter like Colossians, which we'll be covering as the next series in our teaching. Whenever we read a letter that proclaims Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the one by whom all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the one whom all things are sustained by him, and all things were created for him. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. That's what we do as the church whenever we proclaim the Apostles' Creed, the very first line of it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There's a cost involved, however, in reciting this basic proclamation and rendering this basic worship to God. Back in the Apostle John's days, it meant politically not bowing the knee to the Roman emperor, in which the Roman imperialistic cult practices had set him up like a god. For Christians back then, it meant saying, No, you, Caesar, you are not God. You are but man, creature, creation and we will not bow the knee to you, but only to our true creator God. Now the very stand could cost them their lives, and it did for many of them. For us Christians today, this basic stance of worship is not worked out in our political arena, but it's worked out in the area of our knowledge, our education. It means for many of us today, it means not bowing the knee to naturalistic science. Notice I said naturalistic science and not science itself. I'm referring to naturalistic science that is determined to rule out any thoughts of deity or God in its explanation, especially the explanation of our origins. It means for us Christians not bowing the knee to such a way of doing and using science and instead maintaining steadfast our worship of our Creator God, who could have used what our scientific inquiry reveals to us in Him bringing about creation.
creation. And thirdly, God is worshipped because he is Redeemer. Revelation 5, 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Revelation 5, we remain in the heavenly inner courts, the heavenly control room, so to speak, where we have seen the four living creatures and the 24 elders rendering worship to the one seated on the throne. But here, two further developments take place. First, there is the appearance of the scroll. Verse 1 tells us, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. A scroll in which verse 3 tells us, no one in heaven and on the earth or under the earth was found worthy to open the scroll and read the contents within. And the fact that no one was worthy to open and read the scroll, verse 4, that led the Apostle John to weep and to mourn deeply. The scroll lies upon the open palm of the one seated on the throne, waiting for someone worthy to come and take the scroll, to break its seals and read the contents of what is inside. Now, as mentioned earlier, this scroll takes the form of the doubly inscribed contract deal, sealed with seven seals and with a description of the contents written on the back. Now, this type of a contract deed had an ancient history. Uh, it was used by the Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans for various kinds of contracts, including divorce proceedings. But here in Revelation 5, while the scroll takes its form and its description from the doubly inscribed contract deed, the contents of what we find in the scroll goes beyond any contract we can find. The fact that there is a pause in the heavenly courts as the search for one who is worthy to open the scroll takes place. The fact that the Apostle John breaks down and weeps upon discovering no one was worthy enough to break the seal and open the scroll. This all goes to show the importance of what was written in the scroll. In the scroll contains God's redemptive plan and the future history of God's creation. If God is the great creator, then he is also the one who knows the purpose and end point of his creation. And that purpose and end point is all written in the scroll. The contents of the scroll is so important that we can even say the book of Revelation is all about God telling us how he will bring about the fulfillment of the contents of the scroll. If only one worthy enough to open it, could be found. And one worthy enough is found. Verse 5, one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here is a victorious description. A lion, a king like David himself and from his line, conquering, victorious, a picture of military might, Surely, if there's anyone, it's this one who is worthy to open the scroll. Yet, when John turns, he sees a lamb standing. Furthermore, a lamb looking as though it had been slain, but still standing and obviously alive. 
So here we come across our first two paradoxes. Is it a lion or a lamb? And the answer is both. Then is the lamb slain or is it standing and alive? Answer once again is both. And when we consider where the lamb appears from, a third paradox. Verse 6. The ESV renders it as between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. But the Greek more accurately captures the sense of in the midst of, meaning the lamb is in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures and the elders. Furthermore, in Revelation 7 verse 17, the lamb is described as being upon the midst of the throne, or another way of putting it, at the center of the throne itself. So does the lamb emerge from the throne itself? Or does the lamb emerge as one near the throne and from the midst of the four living creatures and the elders? Answer once again is both. I think the passage is worded in such a manner to convey the idea of both. After all, isn't that who our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, is? Very God and very man. Perfect in deity, perfect in humanity. And the Lamb as one who emerges from the midst of the throne and from the 24 elders captures this mysterious notion of one who fully and perfectly represents both sides. He is the one who comes as the Passover Lamb. He is the one who comes as the lamb led to the slaughter as foretold by the prophet Isaiah. He is the lion and the lamb. The one who conquers not through military might, but through paschal sacrifice. And because of what the lamb has done, the four living creatures and the 24 elders break out into a new song. Verse 9. New in the sense that here we have a new defining moment in the worship of God because of this new definitive act that God has done. The new here is the same adjective that is used for the later references of New Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth that we see in Revelation. A new age has dawned with the sacrifice and victory of the Lamb that was slain. And this new age is shown by the new worship chorus rendered to the Lamb. And the heavenly courtroom scene here closes and climaxes in the greatest worship of all. Not only are the four living creatures and the 24 elders involved, but every angel, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all are praising the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Notice here, this final grand worship is directed to the one who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, and what accompanies both the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb as the sevenfold Spirit of God. Revelations 4, 5 and 5, 6. Worship is directed, in other words, to what we Christians have come to term the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three in one, the one in three, distinguishable but yet inseparable. 
the one triune Godhead. Three points for us to reflect further, even as we have had the privilege of being invited with the Apostle John into the heavenly inner courts to see and witness the one central thing that takes place there, the worship of the living triune God. So the first point of reflection, the close relationship between creation and redemption. Now, if the contents of the scroll contains the fullness of God's purpose for this creation, and if the contents of the scroll reveal where God is wanting to take this creation to, its final destination, then that purpose and destination inevitably involves redemption. In other words, as far as this creation is concerned, as far as this world, its history, its time is concerned, it cannot run away from redemption. This creation and this present world needs redemption. And as long as you and I are part of this creation, and the last I checked, we are, it means that we too need redemption. That's not too hard to imagine, isn't it? The fact that we need redemption. Because if there's anything that we can echo as the world concerning our lives right now is the fact that we need redemption from the scorch of the COVID-19 virus. We need redemption from its physical, economic and social repercussions. And right now as a world, we are just waiting for redemption from this pandemic, most likely in the form of a vaccine. But it's not just limited to COVID-19 that we need redemption from. COVID-19 will come, COVID-19 will go, but another pandemic will come again just as the history of pandemics has revealed to us. We need redemption from the wider cycle of pandemics, from the wider cycle of decay that this present creation is caught up with. We need redemption from the deeper cycle of sin and rebellion that we as fallen humanity is just bent on showing towards our Creator God. We need redemption that comes in the form of the self-sacrifice of the Lamb. Without the sacrifice of the Lamb, there is no way the scroll can be opened. And as long as the scroll is not open, there is no way that this creation, this world, can ever reach where its Creator God wants to bring it. For you and I, that means without accepting the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way that we can live out to the fullest the way we were meant to live, the way we were created for. So here's a personal plea to you. If that is you participating in this service, but as one who has yet to give his or her life to the Lord Jesus, may you realise today that God's full plan and purpose for you involves nothing less than his son redeeming that life, redeeming that purpose. You and I, this creation, this world, we need redemption. We need the redemption that the Lamb has provided for us. The second point follows from the first. Not only is creation inextricably tied up with redemption, the Creator Himself is the only one fitting to be the Redeemer. On the one hand, the one worthy to open the scroll must be the one in whose hand holds the scroll. 
If the scroll has to do with God's plan and purpose for this creation, then only He as Creator can open the scroll and fulfill the full purposes for this present creation. But on the other hand, because the plan and purpose for creation involves its redemption, only one whose kind comes from the created order itself can bring about that redemption. That's why in a mysterious manner, the Lamb is seen to emerge from both the midst of the throne and the elders. And in that way, the Lamb represents both the one sitting on the throne and the elders surrounding the throne. This is the key truth that the best of our Christian theological tradition has maintained. We worship our great God, who not only having created us, comes to us as one of us in our weakened, infirm, and lowly state, yet without sin, precisely to save us and redeem us. This is our great God who renews his creation that has gone astray, not by discarding this current creation and changing it externally from the outside, but he does it by redeeming and transforming her from within. This is our creator God, who is also our redeemer God. And the last point of reflection, the close relationship between worship, suffering, and the overcoming of suffering. If in Revelation 4 and 5, we have been through the Apostle John invited to witness the heavenly courts and to see for ourselves the central action that takes place in this heavenly control room. And if whatever that takes place in this heavenly reality has a direct impact on our earthly reality, and if that central action that takes place there is worship, worship of our triune God because of who he is, because he is creator and redeemer, then worship must similarly be the central action that takes place in our earthly reality and lives. But there is more. Because what lies at the center of the worship of the Lamb is a paradox. What lies at the center of our worship of God will be a paradox too. And what's that paradox? It's simply this. Victory through apparent defeat. Evil conquered through suffering. Redemption achieved through sacrifice. At the fulfillment of this current creation's time, history, and the end point of her journey lies this divine paradox that brings us to the limit of our human understanding. And if it were not for divine revelation, no one could have imagined that it would ever be this way. The same applies to us now too. We worship God in our earthly reality, in our lives, we worship God out of this divine paradox. Which means, brothers and sisters, we worship God not because he has taken away our pain and suffering. We worship God not less suffering, but we worship God in the very midst of our suffering. We worship God through our suffering, for it is as we do so that God takes us to the very end point that he has purposed for us. Victory through apparent defeat, evil conquered through suffering, redemption achieved through sacrifice. 
I know all of us have suffered from the impact of COVID-19 in various ways and to various degrees. Some physically, especially for those who have caught the virus and are battling against the virus in their health. And here we need to keep remembering, especially the migrant workers in our midst. Some others, economically, as we lose our jobs, we have to retrain for a new industry and we have to worry seriously for the first time how we are going to put food on the table for our families. Yet some others socially, as we really feel the effects of isolation. And finally, some mentally and emotionally, as we have to handle fresh wave after wave, bout after bout of insecurity, fear, anxiety, depression. Wherever we are, be encouraged. Be strengthened as we hear God's word to us today. Know that because there is one worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, and because the Lamb of God has indeed done that for us in our time and history as the Lord Jesus who came, lived, died, and resurrected, know that God's full purpose for this creation and for us will be brought to its very end. Victory the conquering of evil, the redemption of our entire beings, and renewal that is complete and thorough. Is he worthy? He is. He is. He surely is. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord, we declare as your people, as your redeemed children, that you are worthy. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of all blessing and honour and glory and power. You are worthy because you alone are holy, almighty and eternal. You are worthy because you are creator. You are worthy because you are redeemer. And so, Lord, during the times when we, your children, are weak, disheartened, discouraged, may we remember that because the Lamb has come, and in his sacrifice has broken the seals and opened the scroll, that your full purposes for us and this creation can now be brought about, the complete renewal of our beings. And so we cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us, strengthening and renewing us day by day till the day we see you face to face. Amen.